Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, thank you. Is anything else? Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Um, grab a couple things down here real fast. Hey, if you picked up a, uh, a bulletin on your way in, I want to just um, draw your attention to a couple of things on the, on the back. Um, one is, you know, one thing that, that we always hold in high value here at Timberland is providing opportunities, atmospheres, environments where you can plug in in a smaller community in some way. We, see we do small groups. We talk about a lot of different ways. Um, and, and classes is another great opportunity for that because it's a smaller setting where you have the opportunity to ask questions and look at Scripture and think and uh, wrestle with, with, with issues of life and faith with others at similar places. In October, we're starting two new equip classes. One is our Foundations 101. If, if you're at a place where you'd say, man, I, I need to kind of go back to the basics, or I have a friend, I know someone, bring them. Uh, and our Foundations 101 class on the Bible is just a great way to get, okay, wh what is the Bible? What, what's it made up of? How do I you know, learn how to go through it and read it and what 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 are all the parts to it, and all those different pieces that, that oftentimes we can take for granted. And then also Roger Hageman, uh, he's a dear friend of mine, um, is starting a class in October as well, and again, just a great community to be a part of, so hopefully you'll, you'll take a look at those. Um, this last week I was, uh, oh, oh, before I forget, I'm sorry, um, let me and ask, ask our ushers to come forward and uh, take our weekly tithes and offering. Um, I know many of you come prepared to give, so I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So you, you can go ahead and pass those. Thank you so much for your faithfulness in giving. Um, I was starting to say this last week, I, I, uh, I read an article in the New York Times uh, about something that's, that, that, that's taking place today. There's, there's an opening in the, a museum in Britain looking at vandalism uh, that's been done to art. And the thing that's a little different is uh, it talks a little bit about some of the vandalism. It mentioned like uh, even just in the past few months that there were like three significant attacks on, on art in, in different places. Uh, in June, one man spray-painted uh, a recently completed portrait of Queen Elizabeth II at Westminster Abbey. Um, another glued a photograph onto a constable painting in the National Gallery. The most damaging one that they talked about was a defacement um, of a Rothko mural, a mural with, with permanent marker. And it said it took like five months for them to try to remove it and restore it in this whole process. And, and what was so interesting about it is there's this, um, well, a lot of... Uh, a lot of museums don't even like to talk about vandalism because they think it, like it kind of encourages it. They don't want articles on it. They don't want anyone talking or thinking about it. And what was so controversial is there was uh, a, a setting where a museum was actually going to be putting on display vandalized pieces of art. And so they had statues where heads were knocked off and, and paintings that had been slashed and, and cut or defaced in various different ways. And... Um, the idea is, well, you know, maybe we can actually learn something from this. You know, we get, you know, what is it that people are reacting against? And we want to, we can actually look something into the history of, of, of thought, the history of um, art even, and learn something from iconoclastic people, people who are, who are destroying the icons of our culture and, and what that symbolizes. And um, in the article, it was talking about this idea of, um, well, let me just read this, this section, what the uh, author wrote. 
uh, it, it was just published on the 30th, just, what is that, a couple days ago. Um, and he wrote, he said, uh, I'll get to it here. He said, taking scissors to a Van Gogh landscape, smearing paint over a Rembrandt, Rembrandt, setting fire to a Leonardo drawing, even imagining such acts, he said, can make the stomach clench. He says, we'll never own these masterpieces, cannot touch them, may never even be able to see them up close, yet their destruction prompts outrage, is this idea. We're, we're in a series where, where we're looking at kind of a thesis an explanation for, for us, I mean, for humanity. And, and the thesis is this idea that the very best way to explain the human person is, is by kind of considering this idea that, that we, are, we are defaced art. And so, and so our good friend uh, Dave Clack, much to his consternation every week, you know, I've been destroying one of his um, beautiful... Uh, photographs, this $2,900 photograph that every time I talk to him, he's just like, why? Why did you do that? Um, and so I, I don't even know if this is going to work. This is, this is alcohol. And I think, yeah, it kind of takes the paint right, or it uh, takes the color right off of it. So, um, vandalism. It's dull, Right? And this idea that the image of God is like, is like a masterpiece, but the entrance of sin into the human person is you still see the masterpiece. You still see the image of God. You see this uh, resonant beauty. There's greatness, but the part that we also have to explain ourselves is the wretchedness, the defacement. And, and so we've been looking at this idea that this whole idea of defaced art is, is maybe the best picture of what it means to be human for now because it's image of God and yet broken. It's, it's great beauty and great misery, right? And we see this even in our own hearts. And so each week we've been, we've been looking at different aspects of uh, the image of God. And so tonight what I want to look at is... Uh, We are rational. We are, we are thinking creatures. We have, we have minds where we can, we can think, uh, we can muse. We, we are creatures who can, who can think about what is. We can think about reality. Not only that, but we can think about what isn't, you know, hypothetical things. We can think about things that aren't but maybe should be. Or we can think about things that, that hopefully never will be. We have this ability in our mind to, to reflect, not just perceive in, in some sort of an instinctual way and act, but actually to, to imagine, to use our minds in fantastic ways. You know, Pascal, we've been, we've been talking a lot about Pascal. He kind of gives us some of these images of defaced art and some of these really great concrete pictures that are, that are so helpful. He said, do you know how you can know that you were meant for something great, that you're not just like a mere animal. You're not this instinctual animal who just responds. Do you know how you can know that? He says, because you can think about how miserable you are. <laughs> um, see, animals don't, don't like reflect upon their plight, 
right? How horrible, how, how awful, how depressed. They don't reflect upon, they're reflecting. How am I, how am I thinking? What is my thought like? They, they're not able to kind of rise up, up to, to transcend mere biology and to actually think about even thinking. Pascal puts it this way. I can't say it any better. He says, so man's greatness comes from knowing that he's wretched. <laughs> For a tree does not know it is wretched, thus it is wretched to know that, is, that one is wretched, but it is a true sign of greatness to know <laughs> that you are wretched. Um, it was John Stuart Mill, the philosopher, who had this statement. He said, better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. <laughs> right? Have you ever kind of wanted to, you know, sometimes I just want to be a pig. I just want to be sad. I just want bliss, you know, ignorance. But he says, no, 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 no. There's great, even in our the fact that we're dissatisfied by our, our, our place in life, the fact that we want and we strive and we say, oh, I wish I, I wish I had, you know, I aspire to things. The fact that we do that speaks of the masterpiece behind all the broken pieces. It speaks to the image of God in us. And so our glory as image bearers is revealed in this word right here, being rational, being thinking creatures. And see, this comes from that, that, that image of God. Because see, do you realize that God is, is the supreme rational being of the universe? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Listen, listen to what the author of Hebrews, he's reflecting on this whole idea of uh, by faith, how people have interacted and understood and done different things. And he's just sort of listing off these bullet points of things. And he says, one of those pieces is um, we realize that the universe was formed at God's command so that, and this is an interesting way to put it, he says, so that what is seen, our physical universe, okay, the, everything that is, what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Uh, there's, there's a Christian doctrine creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. The idea that God didn't go to the Home Depot of the universe to fashion stuff. He, he dreamt it up. His reasoning capabilities are so vast that he dreamed up all the different intricacies of how things would happen, how things would function, what things would look like, how, how each thing would interact with the other things and played it out. He has, you know, we did a series... Um, I think it was a couple of months ago, looking at uh, what is God like. We looked at different attributes of God. In one of those weeks, we talked about God's, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows hypothetical things. He knows, had I chosen this, something else, you know, branches down the road that like, they're even hypothetical, what are called counterfactuals. God's, God's mind and his reasoning ability is like, it blows our mind. It's absolutely phenomenal. And so he has thought through all these things. And see, anytime, anytime you learn something that is true, anytime that you explore the world that God designed and made up, you know what you're doing? You are thinking God's thoughts after Him. Isn't that cool? Anytime you learn something that is true or explore the world some way He's made, you're thinking God's thoughts after him. Um, next week, we're going to be looking at this whole idea that, you know, we're, we're creative, vocation, work. Like, how does, how does work get impacted by sin, and what does that 
mean and look like. But um, anytime that you do mathematics, physics, uh, philosophy, uh, engineering, fill in the blank, you're thinking God's thoughts after him. Don't you love that? Isn't that such a cool picture? See, this is why Jesus connected loving God with our mind, um, thinking well, I should say, and, and love, worship. Uh, Jesus one time was approached by, by a man and he said, he said, okay, you know, we, we, there's, like, there's like 613 laws in the Old Testament is how the Hebrew people understood the scriptures, you know, they boil down to 10, but, but, but there's 613. And so the question was always like, well, what, what takes precedent? Which ones are higher? Which ones are, are more important? And one time someone came to Jesus and he said, okay, boil it down. What would you say is like, from God's perspective, the most important thing about life? What do you have to get right? Because there's stuff we don't get right, but what, what do you have to? His language is, what, what's the greatest commandment? What does God care about? And you remember Jesus' response? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, what's the next word? Mind and strength, right? That's interesting. Jesus connected thinking, using your mind well, with worship and love of God and following him. See, learning, I want to suggest, learning can be an act of worship. It's really interesting. Um, John Ortberg wrote a, wrote a book recently uh, looking at the enormous impact that the historical person of Jesus ha has had just on human history, and specifically in one place, on, on the idea of learning and, and knowledge. Um, he points out that, that you know, when we look at what we call Matthew 28, the Great Commission, this is, this is Jesus' like he, you know, resurrections, death has happened, burials happened, resurrection, and he's, he's got his small band of followers, and he's going to charge them, he's going to commission them with, here's how I'm going to continue expanding my kingdom in hearts and minds, but I'm going to use you, okay? So he's kind of laying out the, here's the plan, here's how we're going to do it. In Matthew 28, he says this, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped them, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and said to them, here's the great commission, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Okay? And because of that, he says, go and make apprentices or disciples, students, he says, of all nations, meaning all ethnic groups, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and verse 20, and teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. Okay? Go into all the world, he said, and teach. And what's really interesting is Jesus' followers took this very, very seriously. In Acts chapter 5, we read, day after day, the temple courts, I'm sorry, day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they, this is speaking of Jesus' early followers, they never stopped teaching. They just kept doing this. They kept going. See, in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, teaching was reserved Number one, for, for male children, and number two, for the, the wealthy, okay, the already educated. And what's crazy is the leaders of the church remembered that they followed this guy, Jesus, who taught everyone. Remember the story where it says uh, Mary and, and Martha, Jesus with them, it says Mary was sitting at his feet. The reason that that's language for student language, a student sits at the feet 
of a, of a rabbi, and he accepted it. He, he has a woman sitting at his feet, and they remembered, you know, we follow this Jesus guy, so, guys, so I guess we teach everyone, male, female. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't have these qualifications, so I guess we do, we do free and we do slave, we do poor and we do rich. It doesn't matter, and so they did. And they began a process called catechesis. Anyone here grew up in a church where you went to catechism? Okay. It was a formalized way of training, of saying, how do we do this whole thing? Because remember Jesus said, go into all the world and teach? Like, how do we do that? And so the early, early church came up with this catechesis to say, we need a process of this teaching. And so they began the process of education. About AD 150, uh, there was a Jesus follower by the name of Justin Martyr, and he formed schools early on in Ephesus. He started another school in Rome. And while they taught the Bible, they also reasoned, they said, you know, I wonder if we could find truth in other places too. I wonder if, because this is God's world, and everyone is made in the image of God, even really broken people. In fact, remember that Old Testament story of Balaam and his donkey? God spoke through his donkey. I guess if we could, like, if truth can come through donkeys, I wonder if it could come from, like, like these non-Christian pagans. And so they started reading, like, pagan and, and Roman and Greek literature, thinking, you know what, we will we'll look for wisdom anywhere. We'll find it anywhere. Augustine, St. Augustine had this great statement. He said, all truth is God's truth. Doesn't matter if you hear it from a donkey or from a philosopher. <laughs> all truth is God's truth. Later on, when the barbarians came and, and they sacked Rome, and, you know, you've, you've got the Huns and the Goths and the Visigoths. And Roman culture is disintegrating. All of the great history of learning from the Greek and the Roman culture is just, like, quickly eroding. And so all of the, all of the books, not books, scrolls at this point, very quickly and very easily disintegrate. They are destroyed. And um, at this time, it, in fact, by the 6th century... Europe was almost completely illiterate, and there were no more libraries left. Totally gone. Um, Thomas Cahill wrote a book, uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. In it, he explains how uh, monastic communities, meaning monasteries with monks, how monastic communities copied every ancient text that they could get their hands on. And for centuries... Monasteries were the only, place, only places who were acquiring and preserving and then disseminating knowledge, truth. Um, Yaroslav Pelikan, he's a history emeritus guy at, at Yale University, really, really sharp guy, writes that the only reason we have the vast majority of pagan, meaning non-Christian, classic documents today is, quote, only because they were copied by monks in some medieval scriptorium, <laughs> works of not only Christian saints, but the classical and pagan authors. See, everything that they had learned from the ancients, you know, the details of Latin and Greek uh, grammar and, and rhetoric, uh, the disciplines of arithmetic, geometry, all, all, the only reason we have them today is because these Jesus followers said, all truth is God's truth. And Jesus said, love the Lord God with all your mind. And so we need to think well, and we need to love truth no matter where it comes from and no matter where it leads me to. 
And so monastic communities became places of, of great learning. A follower of Jesus named Benedict collected so many ancient manuscripts that he became known as the godfather of libraries. That's not like a cool title to have, but I mean, it's still kind of, you know, kind of neat. The godfather of libraries, this follower of Jesus. See, and then from monasteries, you know what came out of monasteries? Universities. Um, Ortberg points out a really interesting thing. He says, the beginning of today's faculty system where scholars who, uh, I'm sorry, were scholars who, were, who formed self-governing guilds licensed by the Pope to have sole authority to grant degrees of higher education. This came out of the monastic community, these Christ followers. In fact, the very first university was established in Paris in the, in the 12th century. Oxford and Cambridge uh, came soon after in the 13th century. You know what the motto of Oxford University um, was? It was from Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light. Yahweh is my light. Meaning, the very core and foundation of knowledge, of me being able to see, light has the idea, carries with the idea of how I know the world, truth, thinking, is by, is by basing everything on the idea of this creator God who is supreme rationality himself. Then came universities in Rome, uh, Naples, Vienna, Heidelberg, all begun by followers of Jesus so people could do what Jesus said, and that's love God with all of their mind. By the way, ever wonder why, why we call people who teach in universities, what do we call them? Professors, right? You know why we call them professors? Because they were believed to, to be the wise ones, and they, they, they professed truth. It was this idea that they believed there actually was truth, not just in mathematics and science and the hard sciences, but truth in areas like origin, meaning, morality, destiny, things that today our culture relegates. Well, that's just personal, you know, private, relativized kind of a, that's opinion, but there's no truth on the matter. They were professors in all areas of life. They professed Truth, they thought there was such a thing as truth to profess. In the 16th century, uh, Martin Luther, this is, this is the guy who kind of started the fire of the Protestant Reformation, um, of, of which we are a part of the Protestant church. Martin Luther realized that the New Testament had this crazy idea. It said, um, every believer is a priest. It uses that language, meaning it's now no longer relic. The Old Testament is you've got a priest, you have to go through them. We have, they kind of mediate for us. I have to go through them to get to God. And he goes, well, remember, you know, Jesus said he was the mediator, and now I can go right to him. So I don't need any intermediates. And so Martin Luther, capturing this idea that the New Testament talks about the priesthood of all believers, he believed that um, every person needs to be able to read and write so that they themselves can go to Scripture. They, can, they don't need to be told by someone like me, you know, telling you, this is what the, now don't just trust me, this is what the Bible says. Just believe me, don't worry, I'll tell you what it means. No, they need to be able to go right to God's Word and commune because there's no intermediary. They can access God directly themselves. Um, Luther wrote, listen to this, this is like, this is crazy. Luther wrote about parents who neglected the education 
of their kids. Listen to these words. He says, I shall go on after, uh, I'm sorry, I shall go after the shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are not parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young. Luther is a very calm, gentle man. He, you know, he, he kind of, yeah, I kinda, always kind of wondered, like, what do you really, how do you really feel about that? Um, George Marsden uh, noted that within six years of, of the Puritans landing in, in Massachusetts, they established what would soon become uh, a very reputable college. In fact, this is, this is, from, this is from the student handbook of that college. Listen to these words. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies, life and thinking, the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3. And therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That was the handbook from Harvard University. Orpard writes, 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities founded in America were begun for followers of a formerly uneducated, illiterate, never wrote a book carpenter. <laughs> he changed the world because he said, go into all the world and teach. And love God with your mind. Think really well. Um, anyone here ever grew up going to Sunday school? I did. I, yeah, I mean, I went all the way through. Um, ever, ever hear how Sunday school got started? This is interesting. In, in 1780, uh, there, there was a Jesus follower in Great Britain named Robert Rakes. And Robert Rake saw how there was this cycle of ignorance and poverty. And he goes, man, people don't know him, and, and they just live in this squalor. And he realized, uh, in fact, he had, a, he had a statement, he said, the world marches on the, on the feet of children. Kids were working six days a week in horrible conditions. And he said, this is, it's just a cycle. And this whole generation is going to be lost. And so he said, you know what I'm going to do? On the one day they have off, I'm going to start a school, and it's going to be free, and I'm going to teach these kids how to read and how to write. And, that, and he called it Sunday school out of that. And uh, he said, quote, I'm going to start a school for free to teach them to read and write and learn about God. You know what's really crazy? Within 50 years, okay, within 50 years of doing this, there were 1.5 million children being taught by 160,000 volunteers who had a clear vision of educating the next generation, saying, I am not going to lose this next generation. They're going to they're know, they're going to reflect the image of God by thinking to their greatest capacity, and they're going to learn about who God is. And Orberg writes this, he says, it was one of the great volunteer triumphs of the world, Sunday school. Alfred North Whitehead, who uh, was kind of this super influential guy of, of the last century, um, just kind of wrote every single, you know, he wrote in mathematics and religion and logic and um, algebra, all, you know, science, all this sort of thing. 
he asked a question. He asked a really interesting question. He said, what is it that made it possible for science to emerge? Because he's kind of going, you realize that like the history of the world, it, I, mean, I mean, there's been cultures and why did science only arise once, right? Because it only came up once, really. Um, Alfred North Whitehead's answer it was this. It was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Because see, here's the point. If your assumption is the idea that there is a God who, who is supremely rational and he created things, kind of like a, like, a, like a beautiful piece of art, you're going you're gonna to be led to very different conclusions than if you think this is, a can, this is a random, chaotic, pointless, meaningless universe that's just sort of a giant machine that has no, no mind behind it. And he said his, his view, who he, again, he's not coming at it from a strong Christian perspective, is saying it's because of the medieval insistence that there is a supremely rational God. In America... The very first law to require universal education, it, it was declared in Massachusetts in 1647, and listen to the name of this law. This is like awesome, but this, this makes me laugh. It was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. <laughs> the old, you know, that old deluder. And listen to some of the language of this. It said, it being one chief product of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures and to the end that learning may not be buried in the graves of our forefathers. That's what it was about. See, ignorance is not a Christian virtue. Being, being you know, not, not developing your mind, not in comparison to someone else's mind, but not developing your mind in its specific gifting, if it's very artistic or if it's the scientific or if it's, you know, the, the tactile, whatever it is, not using your mind is a vice and it is a sin. It is being disobedient to God to not think well. And it's a tool of the devil, he points out too. So here's the big point. Thinking, you guys, thinking is a spiritual endeavor. That's what I want us to see. Because remember, all of life is image of God. The whole painting is an image of God and part of that painting is thinking, reason. When you think well, you're reflecting this divine quality. It's an aspect of worship. It's part of the spiritual life. Think about this. In Genesis 3, we look, we've, we've looked a couple weeks, remember, at Genesis, going through looking at you know, the creation and what, what, what God does as far as humanity, the image of God. And then Genesis 3, this, this grand rebellion where, where Adam and Eve fall out of relationship with God because they, they rebel. What's interesting is that Satan didn't hit Eve with a stick. He hit her with an idea, right? What was that idea? The idea was, you know, God doesn't have your best interests in mind. Uh, he's holding something back. There's something better, and you're going to have to secure that on your own because he's not on your side all the time. It was an idea. Thinking. It was the area of reason. It was that aspect of the image of God that, that he got into in order for that great rebellion to happen. Thinking is a spiritual endeavor. Let me give you an example, too, of just how this kind of works in, in our practical life. Um, 
People who are re, uh, rejected as kids by their parents, maybe abused as children, uh, maybe they lived with, uh, with an addict or, or a cold parent, someone, someone who is very distant, will have a distorted idea, distorted thinking about themselves, about reality, about the world that they live in. And this distorted thinking is like constantly present in their lives. It's, it's the landscape in which they live their lives. It's, it's sort of a disastrous mental landscape. See, if you suffer for, from poor self-image, um, if, you're, if you're caught up in self-rejection, if, if you don't understand this idea that you are the object of God's love, okay, this, you have this wrong thought, you will be especially susceptible to um, group pressure, right? What's success? Well, it's what others will tell you it is, and you will run after that. Um, power, um, popularity, status, whatever it might be. See, when you believe the voices, whether it be your own or others, that, that, that call you worthless, uh, unlovable, then all of a sudden, it's going to look like a really good solution to pursue success. It's going to look like a really good solution to go after status, to go after power, to go after fill in the blank, whatever it is. You'll create idols, because in that, you will feel, okay, now I have value. Now I have worth because I've achieved this. I've gotten something. Thinking is a spiritual component of our lives. When we, when, when we don't think well, it impedes our growth, our spiritual growth. My goal in life, your goal in life, God's goal for you, God's goal for me, is that you look like Jesus in heart, that, that you're conformed to the image of Christ. Um, and it's not just from childhood, you know, that this, ha this, this happens all throughout even our day. Dallas Willard, who just passed away this last year, uh, he's, he's got this great line because it's such a good picture. He says, as we go throughout our day, we pick up beliefs like a coat picks up lint. Isn't that, isn't that great? As we go throughout our day, we pick up beliefs like our coat picks up lint. You go shopping, you turn on, you see advertisement, what all of a sudden, my belief, I go into a, you know, I'm watching a, I go into a store, I see something, all of a sudden I'm believing, what, what's a value? What should I want? What should I pursue? Right? This is why I always, you ever, you know, when I go to a funeral, I, I need to go to a funeral like every, every month because there's a contrast between what we're told culture says the good life is, meaning what I should want, what I should value, but none of, those are none, none of the things that we talk about at the end of our life. As I look at people who have impacted me who are gone, I don't talk about any of those things. Because see, our culture is, I'm picking up beliefs every single day about what has value, what I should want, what I should pursue in my life. This is why Paul... The apostle writes in Romans chapter 12 when he, he's talking about living this life in the kingdom and all the stresses and the struggles and the strains and all this stuff. He says, we want to look like Jesus. That's our goal. Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that means you know, he, he's come down to us, what he's done, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then listen to the key. Here's, here's the skeleton key. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but, here's the opposite, 
be transformed. That means look like Jesus. But you know how he said be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. It's your thoughts. It's, it's your reason. It's that component of your life. He says then you'll be able to test and approve God's will. How many of you guys are, le- are, are like me that like a good portion of the frustrations of my life are going, what is God's will for this? Like what should I do, Right? I live in that wanting to know that. And he says, the key to it is to live a life just totally soaked in the person of God by knowing him, not knowing about him, but knowing him. And we do that by our mind, our thoughts, and our beliefs. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, your distorted thinking will keep you from the core truth of the gospel. The core truth of the gospel is that there is a sacred voice saying, you are my beloved. You're the beloved. The reason you have value, the the only reason, the only good reason is because I love you, God says. That's it. But I will be kept from that unless my mind is renewed. Hebrews 8, uh, 10 through 12. Let Let me read this in closing here. The author of Hebrews is, is quoting the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah was saying, what's it, what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like when this is fixed? You know, what's that going to look like? In our last week, we're going to talk about that. We're going we're to look at this idea of the image of God, like, realized. What's it going to be like? And so Jeremiah was using this this Old Testament prophetic language that the author of, Hebrew, of Hebrews grabs, and he quotes Jeremiah by saying this. God says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people And listen to verse 11, he says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, No God, because they will know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. No one will teach because we will will be face to face with God. This is this picture that finally our minds, the things that we're seeing... The point of reason is to, is to love God. I mean, that's what it's all about. As I use this well, as I use this faculty of, of, of reason, of thinking, when I use it well, I see God more clearly. Um, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've learned, I think I've learned more about God from, from, from being a parent than I have in any theology class I took or, or, or book that I read because I'm experiencing, I, I'm learning, it's teaching, but it's a different kind. Where I say something to him, you know, I go, why don't you just trust me instead of asking questions? And it's like, you know, God just goes, oh, ever heard that before? You know, I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, we, I learn experientially and not just out of a text. I'm learning things about what does it mean to have a father who loves me, and I'm a messed up father. I, I, I'm, I'm so messed up, and I do things wrong, and I don't parent right. But, but, but I love them, even though it's, I'm, I'm broken. I'm trying to love through this messed up, defaced art that I am. And he says, you now have an inkling 
as to how much I love you, that you are the beloved. And it's that whole, it's that whole learning things. I'm going, okay, I get it now. All these things that I've read just on paper that kind of, okay, here's who I am, I have value because that now I'm experiencing it. I see it more clearly. And one day we will be with God, that perfect father, and we will hear him say, you're my beloved, well done. Enter the joy that is my kingdom, that is me. That's our goal. And so as we think about our lives, being made in the image of God, thinking well, I want to encourage us and I want us to pray here in just a second. I want to encourage you to, to take before God something this week, because this is something we don't talk a lot about in church, because, you know, this, you know, it's, church is all about spiritual, and you know, this seems mental and academic and all this stuff. No, no. Take before God this week a question and say, God, what would it look like for me, unique as I am, all my gifts and abilities and how you've hardwired me, to love you with all my mind? Like, what is that? Maybe, maybe it's signing up to teach, you know, some young kids. Maybe it's doing something like it. Maybe it's, maybe it's coaching and teaching some skills that way. Maybe it's just thinking better about you. Maybe it's saying, man, I want to turn to Scripture because as I get this clear picture of God, all of a sudden worship flows that happens more, more, more naturally because I see God for who He is and not my screwed up picture of who He is. Whatever it might be, ask God this week, God, how do you want me to use my mind better and my thoughts? What are the areas that need to be just rehauled in my life? And I want to, let's, would you join me? I want us to pray for all of us in that regard. Heavenly Father, we are, as we've said almost every single week, we are in awe of the fact that we are made in your image, that, that you allow us to be image bearers to our world. And God, I want to pray for every single one of us, because we have it just different degrees. Those of us who, who live with false ideas, false landscapes, paradigms, of who we are, who you are, what your intentions are toward us, how other people view us, all that stuff. That's so complicated. And Father, we need renewal of the mind so we can, we can live with assurance that, that we have a God who loves us, that, that, we have, that we can find relationships that will be meaning and fulfilling to us. God, I pray for those people who, who have neglected their mind in various different ways. Help them to see that whatever informs them, forms them. And so help them to give careful thought to what they are allowing into their mind because those will be the beliefs that they then act out, that motivate action. And maybe some areas that they would say, I just, I can't allow those thoughts to come before me anymore because it's forming me, not toward Christ. And I pray that you would empower them in that regard, surround them with other believers, help them to feel free enough to go to someone else and talk about some of those challenges that, that you were calling them toward. And God, would you give us a passion like the followers of Jesus have always had to, to go out and to teach in whatever way that looks like. We all teach differently. We teach different trades, different abilities. But help us to care about the life of the mind of our friends and our kids, most importantly ourselves, and that we would love you with all our mind. Help us to see and understand and have new categories of thought for you so that we'll be that much more blown away and that when we come to worship, it, it'll just 
It'll be easy because we see you for who you truly are. That's our goal, God. Thank you. Thank you for this plan of redemption. Thank you that, that even though we are defaced, we know we're wretched, but God, we also know we are loved. We thank you for that. We pray this in the name of our King, Jesus, who is the Logos, John 1, 1, the logic, the principal reason of the universe. Amen. Amen. You guys, thank you so much for being here tonight. Hey, a um, couple things real quickly. Um, I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward. If you would like prayer, uh, we, would, we would love to pray for you this evening. They're going to be up front here. Uh, a value of our community is being community, which just means being together and hanging out. So we've got, we've got cookies and coffee and water. I don't even know what the, what the things are for tonight, but they're always good. There's like, oh, there's homemade stuff back there too. So hang out, get some of that. Uh, get, your, get your kids at eight, bring them back, let them finish off the food. And love you guys. We'll see you this weekend.